We often use words to exaggerate reality. A great example is the expression spellbinding. It means to hold one's attention as though by magic. And today in this age of noise and distraction and time limitations, to hold anyone's attention to your content takes more than magic. It requires a worthy story, one that makes you think and feel and act. And to me, the stories that matter, that move people are ones that involve a human journey. They're the ones I love to read, see, and with chatter that matters, share. Why? Because I think they're relatable. Because all of us are on some form of journey. My guest today is a wonderful mother. She's met Oprah, best-selling author and entrepreneur, has touched foreheads with the Dalai Lama, and helped Desmond Tutu write his book. She's also a recovering addict who almost lost her children. I believed that I would never see my children again. I believed that hope was a thing reserved for the good and the worthy. And so I hung my head in shame, and then I tried to hang myself. Today, finally, I am lifting my head back up. She was a thief and a liar who spent time in jail for theft and fraud and was shamed by the media as the neighbor from hell, a neighbor who would steal your credit cards to feed her habit. Her name is Lara Love Harden, and she's just released The Many Lives of Mama Love, a memoir of lying, stealing, writing, and healing. This is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Lara Love Harden, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. I get sent books all the time, which I'm so honored by. I rarely read them word for word just because of time limitations. I couldn't put yours down. I want to tell you something. You've got a bestseller ahead of you. Your story is wonderful. It's moving. It's emotional. But you're one hell of a great writer. Thank you so much. I mean, I think that is the hallmark to me of a book is I don't want to be able to put it down. So that was one of my goals. So I'm happy to hear that. Laura, to do justice to your journey, I think it's important to understand just how extensive it is. I want to talk, have you talk about your childhood, your depths of your addiction through this interview, but also Oprah and Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama and so many other things that happen. But let's wind it back to your childhood because in your book, you reference fleeting glimpses of starvation, abandonment, and moments of crisis. Sort of talk to me a little bit about what you've dealt with when it comes to family. So I, I, there is a, one paragraph I'll read you from the book. I don't have a single memory of eating dinner at home with my family. I don't recall any vacations. If I try to remember my childhood, there's only a vague sense of fear, of unease. I have no clear picture of anything concrete or symbolic representing home. And with two of my siblings dying young, I don't have anyone left to fill in the blanks. So that's a little paragraph from the book, but my my sister became an alcoholic as a teenager, very severe alcoholic and uh, when I was 19, she died in a, a solo drunk driving crash in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, my brother was a heroin addict from a really young age and died of an overdose. Um, in my family, there was no uh, language for emotion. Like we never talked about any of this. So I didn't know this was going on. I knew my brother, you know, stayed in the basement and I didn't know that he was a heroin addict. Um, there was a lot of chaos and violence um, in my life. And so I retreated really early on um, into books. 
and into reading. And, you know, my, my early childhood memories really are of school, um, and of being in my closet at home in my room in Massachusetts and just reading books, all the books I could find. And there's a, a sentence that you said in your book that moved me so much that you said, every parent loved me except my own. Yeah, it sounds dramatic, but it really was. Um, well, I grew up with, you know, my my parents uh, separated right when I was born. So I grew up uh, mostly with my mom uh, who worked. And, you know, I'm Gen X, so we were the latchkey kids for sure. Um, but I, you know, I had a great ability early on to um, sort of assimilate into other people's families. You know, I would, I would show up there for dinners. I would uh, go on vacations with them. I would really... Um, try to be the perfect friend to their child, the perfect guest in their home so that they would take me in. Um, and it, it sounds dramatic, that sentence, but it really, um, that's what I grew up feeling. And were you a character in a book when you're in their homes or was that you? I mean, cause the way I read it was really, you really assessed the situation and almost play acted who you needed to be so they would keep you around so you wouldn't have to go back to that home. Yes. I was definitely a character in a book. I don't know which book, and I would change characters depending on whose home it would be. In the in my friends who had artsy parents, I was artsy. In my friends who had mathematical parents, I was uh, talked about science. You know, I could I could uh, be a chameleon wherever I was very early on, and I you know that was a survival survival skill, a coping strategy. It's so ironic that your name is love, given that you found so little love at home and tried to find so much love outside of home. Yeah. You spent a lot of time escaping your family, even either at friends' houses or in your closet and reading, but you run off to California to attend school. How did that come about? So I, you know, I loved school from an early age. That was my safe space. That was um, where I could do well and get attention and get approval. Um, and, you know, reading and writing were uh, the things I loved to do from a very early age. And so I uh, worked many, many jobs from the time I was 14 and saved up for college. And I went 3,000 miles away from home, kind of as far as I could get uh, to California. I didn't get into Stanford, which was my choice, but I, I went to UC Santa Cruz for undergraduate. And I just reinvented myself as soon as I got to California. I was suddenly now a California girl, right? I put on the the tie-dye and I played ultimate Frisbee and... Uh, made friends in California and um, and majored in creative writing and English. So I want everybody to listen to the words that Laura writes in her book here as just another testament to why I think you should buy it and get absorbed. Escape was always my real addiction, my one natural high. Books were my gateway drug. Sex just got me pregnant. Food just made me puffy. Vicodin just helped me pretend I was happy. The heroin gave me everything I ever wanted, peace, joy, and escape. And, you know, this emotional accord of escape continues to resonate. And you're at a fairly early age, I guess, being the California girl, going to school, but drugs start becoming a big part of your life. How did that come about? It's interesting that escape, that escape, you know, it started in books and it's a geographical escape. And, you know, I really believed that uh, education meant inoculation. Right. And I say that in the book, like I thought I could out educate myself to be uh, nothing like my family, you know, and and 
genetically, I have a predisposition to addiction, I believe, you know, um, it's on both sides of my family, alcoholism and addiction. Um, so I thought I could outrun it. You know, I thought I could outdo it, outperform it. But really, you know, when I was uh, in my first marriage, I, you know, back then before the opiate crisis was a crisis, Vicodin, which is an opiate pain medication, was handed out in sample packs everywhere you went. You go to the dentist, there, try this Vicodin, try this pain medication. You give birth, here's this pain medication, earache, whatever it was. Um, and so I remember uh, taking uh, one Vicodin, one pain pill, and how it worked in my brain chemistry was it, it made me happy for no good reason. It made me feel like everything was going to be okay. You know, I was in a, a difficult marriage. I was, you know, undiagnosed depression. You know, I never learned the language to ask for help in my life. You know, I've learned it now, but I didn't, I never had it for, uh, you know, decades, decades. Um, so that, that one pill gave me a feeling of well-being, of connection, of joy, it, I thought it made me, you know, braver, smarter, funnier, able to connect with people more, which is really, I think, at the root of my addiction. But um, so one pill then took two pills to fill the same way and so on and so on. And um, eventually, at the height of being addicted to pain medication, I was taking 60 of those a day. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. The youngest of my four boys was home at the time. He was three years old. He was crying and he ran to me for comfort, but I could not comfort him because my hands were handcuffed behind my back. My guest today is Lara Love Harden. Her forehead has been touched by the Dalai Lama. She's broken bread with Oprah, but not before her life is split into a million pieces. We have to move the story forward because there's so much in your book. But if you can frame what's happened to your life when you end up at the seaside resort and spa and what happened that evening. And take your time. We've got time. But I think you're going to do a better job compressing like 100 pages of your book than I can in a few minutes. So go ahead. Addiction is progressive. And um, I was at this point on my second marriage and I thought, um, you know, I quit on my own. Um, and I'd gotten married to someone who also struggled uh, with addiction. He had relapsed and sort of brought uh, heroin into our home, and I had tried it. And so it'd been a good 10, 11 months of, uh, of active addiction. I had six children, you know, four of my boys and two stepchildren uh, in private school. We had a house, we had a business and everything was spiraling out of control. And I knew it was spiraling out of control. And I kept thinking that I would fix it tomorrow, right? If I just do drugs today, I'll be able to, you know, stay together, fix it tomorrow. And really, I don't think what a lot of people understand is in that really extreme form of active addiction, you think that you will die if you don't have the drugs in your system, like it, it feels very survival mode. So things were crashing in on me and, and my family. And I was trying to pretend that I was on uh, the chapters called staycation, but really the power was turned off at home. The neighbors knew I had been looking in their mail and taking their mail. Things were closing in on me. And so I, um, with my youngest son checked into a, uh, little resort near our house on a stolen credit card and was trying to pretend that everything was okay. 
uh, when it wasn't, it was desperately out of control. The security ended up coming. I ended up fleeing from, from the, uh, security officers at the hotel. And this was a nice, uh, resort like hotel. And we went back home. I went back home and, uh, that's when everything really closed in. It wasn't a family intervention or a friend's intervention. It was people breaking down your door to arrest you. You know, that would have been the gentler way, but I just could, you know, the irony is, is that I really, I knew that I needed help, but I thought there's no way I could be away from my children for 30 days to go to rehab. There's no way I could, one, admit that I don't have everything perfectly under control, but also I thought, how would I possibly be away from my children for 30 days? And the irony is when the police came to my door, I ended up being away from them for far longer. There's another chord that gets played through this book, and it's how society treats people like you. And I remember part of the book when you're they're taking you away, they've handcuffed you, they've taken your youngest boy away, I think Caden's two years old? Um, Caden was three, almost four at the time. And, yeah. you know, I had asked the police, the sheriff's officers who were in my house to let me call someone to come take him. He was, my other boys were at school. Um, and they called Child Protective Services instead. And I think the, the deputy on duty saying, you'll never see Caden again. You'll never see any of your boys again. It would be best if you were not anyone's mother. Yeah. He said I should not be anyone's mother and I would never see them again. Laura, I heard the audiobook as well because I wanted to hear your voice before the interview. And you read out this letter that you wrote your boys and the emotion coming through it was so profound. It must have been one of the hardest letters you ever had to write. It was definitely the hardest letter I've ever had to write. And um, Can you read it for me? Dear boys, I'm so sorry. I love you more than anything in the whole wide world. I pray that addiction never gets a hold of you. Always take care of each other. I love you so much. Mom. And I wrote that letter to them because on my second night in jail, I had really believed that I had just failed at life. That there was, you know, I love a good redemption arc, right? I believe, but I believe that there was no redemption for me. I didn't believe I deserved redemption. I believe that redemption was for the good. And in that moment, I believed that I was just bad. And I made this very calm decision to end my life. And I believed, and it was such a wrong belief, but I really believed in that moment that it would be better for my children to have a mother who is no longer alive than to have a mother who is in prison. And I also knew, I thought I would never see my children again. I also thought there was no spark in me. There was no inner fortitude, any resilience, any strength to get through what was in coming in ahead of me, what was in front of me. And you you actively tried to end your life that night. You did everything possible yeah. to, to say, this is my last day on earth. And I'm, I'm glad that didn't happen. Yeah, I am too. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, a little bit of a miracle that it didn't happen. Let's talk about your time in prison that you describe often as a psychological warfare between the guards and the inmates. When you explain it, to me, it seems unfathomable that anybody can leave prison a better human being. It's really hard to leave a better human being. You know, the thing is, too, is uh, jails and prisons were designed for men. 
they weren't designed for women. And the reason, you know, the reason women go to uh, are incarcerated are often for far different reasons than men, you know, and 80% of women in jail are mothers. So, and a lot of times they're in jail for interpersonal reasons. So you're in this setup where you have no control where the guards who in the, in the main jail were, were 99% men have complete control of your life. They control uh, your meals, your mail, your visits. Um, you know, for us, they, as a form of punishment, they, uh, they controlled a, a TV in G block where I was and they played country music videos around the clock. Um, which the women, you know, sort of turned around on them by learning all the songs and creating dance routines to it. But, but it was complete, um, dehumanization, um, exploitation, you know, like if you look at the, at the sort of red flags for, for domestic abuse, even, you know, like they control, you know, all of those psychological hallmarks are built into the incarceration system for women. So it's, um, it's not easy. And yet within it, you found a community around a hot pot. You found a voice. You became a leader. You became somebody that people relied on because of your writing skills. So there's a great quote I had from a, a recent guest that said, you can find good in any crisis. And she lived through a horrific crisis. So tell me about the good that you found in that county jail. It's interesting because what I really learned there is that we will make a family wherever they are. Right. Like you, you create a family and everybody, uh, because 80% of the women in jail are mothers, often sole, uh, caregivers. We supported each other. Um, I wasn't the only one who had their children from child protective services. So I had the experience of other women. You know, I met some really amazing, creative, brilliant women in jail. You know, I remember being in jail and thinking, wow, someday I should do this is long before I was going to become a literary agent or be back in the in the publishing world. But I was like, someone should do a hot pot cookbook because the gourmet meals that are made from, you know, a leftover peanut butter sandwich and random food items with this one hot pot. uh, You know, there was elaborate birthday cakes made to celebrate each other. So it was really um, we were all going through the same thing. And so uh, we supported each other. There's power structures in jail. And I found, you know, I was a mother with nowhere to put my mother energy. So I brought it to jail, the women of G Block and then Blaine Street. And and I was given the nickname Mama Love. And you read a book by Eckhart Tolle called The Power of Now, once again, escaping into books. But this turns out to be possibly not an escape, but a path forward for you. It was definitely a path forward. I mean, I learned to meditate from in jail, you know, it really helped me stop. Really, the the best thing it did was help me stop the sort of ruminating thoughts that I had, and helped me be present even for all the difficult things that I was going through. The court appearances, you know, he has a trick in that book, and this really saved my life. Which was, you say to in your head, "I wonder what my next thought will be," and it will stop your thoughts. And for me, I was just constantly replaying my entire life and all of the bad choices that had gotten me here. I was reliving the traumatic moment of my three-year-old son being terrified and taken from my home by strangers. I was replaying, you know, just every bad decision over and over. So it helped me stop my thoughts, that book, and have some acceptance of where I was. It's Tony Chapman. Coming up, Lara Love Harden meets her Yoda that helps her forge a path to Oprah 
the Dalai Lama, and so many more. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. Most of us have a rewards program, but how many reward you with experiences that money can't buy? A program that's open to all Canadians with a free membership tier called Avion Select. Take advantage of great benefits like cashback when you shop online from over 2,400 retailers and unique experiences like seeing Taylor Swift. Check out the Avion Rewards social handle on Instagram and Facebook to learn more. Avion Rewards that give you cashback and unique experiences? Well, that matters to you and to RBC. I'd like all of you to close your eyes right now. And I'd like you to think about the worst thing you've ever done. Imagine building a whole identity out of the worst thing you've ever done. Imagine that when people talked about you, that's all they talked about. When people thought about you, that's all they thought about. And we all do it when we label people. Criminal, tweaker, junkie, drunk. When we label, categorize, and reduce people to the worst thing they've ever done, we are nothing less than the thieves of hope. We are hope robbers. And it's even worse when we do it to ourselves. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Her name is Lara Love Harden, and she's just released The Many Lies of Mama Love, a memoir of lying, stealing, writing, and healing. So you get on on bail, you're husband that was the one that reintroduced you to drugs meets you there and before long he gets you back on heroin that must have been for you being pulled in two different ways one was the person that's really trying to rebuild their life and confidence and showing that she had love and ability to write and the next thing you know that within you is a demon that will fall back until you know what would be a, a cesspool you know i had a little period of time in jail that i was uh, clean and sober before i was out on bail and i didn't have the in our tools. I didn't have enough Eckhart Tolle. I didn't have enough million things to cope. Um, it was escape from the really difficult. I mean, it was crazy and, and, uh, and really the darkest time in my life. You know, that is the darkest chapter of the book. And I've had people read that chapter, uh, screaming at me of how I could do this, but that is what addiction is until, you know, you need a foundation, you need those coping skills. You need that community and that support, um, or you will fall back. That's the nature of addiction. I think many readers are going to be like me that we're champing for you now. You're the underdog, but we know there's a fight in you. And I was so angry at how the system would drag you all over the town with a child, trying to dot the I's and cross the T's, as opposed to letting you find a footing and find a rung up in the ladder. And I just think it's just the system is so wrong when there's people that have what you have and you've proved that you have, that they just did everything they could to hold you back. You know, when I was in jail after I was sentenced and went back to jail to do the rest of my time after being out on bail, I remember women leaving jail and then a week later, two weeks later, they'd be rearrested and be back in and I couldn't understand it. I was like, that's crazy. If I ever get out of here, I would never come back, you know. But once I got out and it was so hard, two things. One, it was so hard, all the obstacles and barriers and illogical demands, and you have to be in three different places at once and drug tests for different organizations who are in the same county, but not coordinating information. And you have to have a job, but it has to be a job on a moment's notice. You can leave to go meet this requirement. I understood how easy it is to go back and sometimes how, how much safer it felt in jail than outside walking that tightrope. Um, you know, I, I always said it was like walking a tight, a tightrope in the wind in high heels. That's what being on probation feels like. Even if you're doing everything right, 
and you're not, you're meeting all the requirements and you're not doing, you know, you're staying clean and sober and you're doing everything. It is so, so hard not to go back to jail and it doesn't need to be. That name mama screams true at this point because you're saying, this is my child. I'm going to be this child's mother. I'm going to be the mother of others. And you meet this individual called Doug Abrams. And I could see you smiling right now, but this was not an escape into a book that turned to a lead to a path. This is a person that's going to be your trailblazer. This is a person who's going to be my champion for sure. And sometimes all you need is one person to believe in you, especially when you're re-entering after, you know, with the stigma and shame of incarceration and addiction and being, you know, publicly humiliated in the newspaper and all of the things to rebuild your life. You need one person to spark your own belief in yourself. And for me, that was Doug Abrams. You know, I, I was looking for work. You know, I started ghostwriting in jail, writing letters for the other women um, and writing again because I stopped, you know, for me, I can't do drugs and write. Those two things don't go together. So when I fell into addiction, I stopped my love of writing that I'd had my whole life. I just stopped. So uh, I read an ad in Craigslist for a part-time assistant at a literary agency. And it was a literary agency that worked for Desmond Tutu. And I said, why is this a Craigslist ad? Like, I, I'm just going to do this. You know, it was a big, long writing exercise, the application. And so I I did it all. And um, I got a call uh, to come for an interview in like an hour. And I was actually at the child wel- welfare office trying to get some food stamps and cash help. Now, if you have a drug conviction in our county anyway, you can't get cash benefits. Um, So I was sort of appealing that. And, you know, so I got this call for an interview and it was this real moment of choice, like this moment I can, you know, you can look back at those moments in your life and you're like, if I went left or right, things would have been different. I have a lot of those, but that moment was like, do I stay here in this county welfare office and try and get some food for today or tomorrow? Or do I risk it and go to this job interview? And I don't know if it's a real legit job, um, but I went to the, you know, I made the choice to leave and go to that job interview and started working for this literary agency with this uh, amazing man, Doug Abrams, who had been an editor at HarperCollins for 20 years and left to start his own literary agency. And I didn't tell him about my criminal criminal background at first because he didn't ask. And I kind of had a don't ask, don't tell. If I was asked, I was going to be honest but I really wanted someone to just judge me for me, like who I showed up as, what my brain could do, what my work ethic was like. And so he did that um, until he Googled me and found out about my background. And then we really had a moment of crisis where he had to decide to walk his talk. And he did. He said, you know what? You know, he called me brilliant the day before he found out about, about my criminal background. And he still thought I was brilliant the next day. And he really said, I can't I can't work with people like Desmond Tutu who are all about truth and reconciliation and not walk my own talk. So he let me stay and and we uh, worked together for 12 years at that agency. So I went from a part-time assistant for five hours a week to the co-CEO 12 years later. And just a couple of things on your highlight reel, because I, I, <laughs> you could have written a book just on those 12 years. I mean, they are standing yeah. ovation 
this is a Stanford graduate who's never had an addiction problem would probably not have what you did for those 12 years. So just brag a little bit. Tell us what the 12 years was all about. The 12 years was amazing. You know, we worked, we represented Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and I got to work on a book with him, the Book of Forgiving, right? A book about forgiveness. I, we worked, we were Brian Stevenson's literary agent. We were, we worked on the Book of Joy with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, Jane Goodall, Stephen Hawking, John and Julie Gottman, you know, Stanford professors and uh, psychologists and really amazing world leaders and scientists. And it was incredible. I mean, the best business trips in the world, you know, getting to go to India to meditate with the Dalai Lama for that book. And it was just exciting and different and Stanford neurosurgeons. And I got to work on so many books and each one I was learning something more that was helping me. But at the same time, the whole for good for ten years of that, I was keeping my secret that I was formerly incarcerated from all of these amazing authors. I was deathly afraid that they would Google me. I was deathly afraid that they would know um, about my past. I was in so much shame, and I'm navigating probation during working with all of these people. You know, I'm going to India to work on the Book of Joy. I'm not sure they're going to let me in the country. Right. And I haven't told anyone. So I was terrified of my story coming out to these people for way too long. And those 12 years, I mean, living with this sort of uh, hidden identity, missing person almost, Mm -hmm. had you discovered who you were or were you again another character saying, I'm going to be the perfect literary agent? Or was this, was the real you starting to come through? The real me was definitely starting to come through. It took as much time as it took for me to kind of own my story and hold my head up and not be in shame about my past. And that, you know, that healing journey was a long journey. You know, I hope for other people, they get out of shame a lot quicker than I did. But I was becoming more me every every year, every day, every month, sometimes every hour. And I eventually started telling a few authors, you know, the the people we were working with are not judgy people, you know, and what I found out ultimately was no one ever judged me as much as I judged myself. No one was as unforgiving of me as I was of myself or unaccepting. And I was given a lot of grace and it really wasn't as um, hard a thing for people to wrap their minds around as it was for me. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. I spent a lot of time wishing for a better past, and that is a big time waster. There's a lot of people who struggle with addiction, and there's a lot of people who love someone who struggles with addiction. So I I hope people learn the language of asking for help. I hope I'm a cautionary tale of not asking for help. My guest today is Lara Love Harden, and she's just released The Many Lies of Mama Love, a memoir of lying, stealing, writing, and healing. And I'm going to give you another plug. This is the most plugs I've ever given an author. Read this book. It's so powerful. And you write, I love the line and I want you to read it to me. I believe going to jail was the best thing that ever happened to me. I am a better mother, a better friend, a better worker, and a better writer because of my experiences. I'm so fascinated by that because I would have said, you know, meeting Doug was the best thing that ever happened to me or or learning that I could write my own memoir was the best thing. But you go back to this time in your life where you're seconds away from taking your life. Why do you think that is so foundational to who you are today? I lost everything that made up who I was in my jail experience. I was, I was no longer a mother, a wife, a friend, uh, a worker, anything. I was an, I was an inmate with a number and I had to rebuild 
from a clean slate. And I think, you know, that was the best thing that ever happened to me. It made me a far better mother because I was more real, right? My children, um, when I got out of jail and even when they'd visit me in jail, suddenly we could speak to each other in an honest way. My boys have always come to me with everything because after what I've been through, there's nothing they can't tell me. There's nothing we can't talk about. And so I think that was a really, that's a gift for them. You know, it's hard that my journey is also their resilient story, right? Um, but I think it has, it has just made me a more empathetic person. It has made me uh, a much better writer than I would have been, than I had with my MFA in creative writing before jail. Because it just made me go deep in a way that I might not, I might have gone my whole life playing the perfect role of the perfect mother and the perfect wife and the perfect cul-de-sac liver or uh, liver, the perfect neighbor. And this just made me really me and the journey to own my own story, I think is something, um, it was just freeing. It was just ultimately freeing. And do you think, you know, they say we're always an addict, but that neighbor from hell is your past and your future is running your own literary agency and writing these great books? It's a part of my story. It's not my whole story. You know, like, you know, I lived in fear of people Googling me. And now, you know, you have to go a few Google pages in to see that neighbor from hell article. And I think that's right. I can't erase it. But really in like sharing my story and not kind of living in fear of people finding out it's it's given me a freedom. It's given me empathy. Um, you know, I have my own agency now. And, you know, I'm always, you know, I have a soft spot for the underdogs, and the marginalized and, and, uh, the addicts and the, the people who are struggling, you know, those are my people. <laughs> so, you know, and I love, you know, ordinary people with extraordinary stories. There are so many ordinary people with extraordinary stories. Um, and I'm excited to bring those books as a literary agent to the world. And we share a love of the underdog. Mm -hmm. Um, I do it through this podcast. You do it through being the underdog that's, that succeeded. I always end my podcast with three takeaways. And the first one is the word judge. You know, I just want to be judged for me. And you were so worried about when people would found out who you were and you realized that what they really fell in love with was you, not your past, not headlines in the newspaper. And I think that's an important thing for us to, to remove our biases. I don't like the way that person looks. I don't like their color. Uh, they're dressed funny. They're asking for money. Instead of just judging and putting somebody in a file box, I think it's important we realize that inside everybody is the word me. I think the second one, which is something that comes through is, uh, I always call it a Yoda in my stories, is that mentor that helps you get to where you need, want, and deserve to go. Funny enough, the first one was in a book, but the second one was with Doug and finding him. And even when he found out that who you were in your past, you were brilliant yesterday, you're brilliant today. And having that trust and faith must have made you realize that you are on a path forward and not one that's going to suddenly be taken away from you. So I thought that was fantastic. And the third is the, the word escape and how you escaped into books. You escaped by trying to be the newfound daughter in your friends' homes growing up. You escaped into California to be the California girl, escaping into drugs. Uh, and then today now, you're really, your world, as you said, is just what you ended with is it's to champion the underdog and help them escape from being an underdog. And help them share their stories so this world is a much better place. I am in a much better place, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Lara Love Harden for being part of Chatter That Matters. It's just, I mean, your book and you are very special. Thank you so much, Tony. 
So joining me is Amy Deacon. Yes, the one and only Amy Deacon. She's the CEO and founder of Toronto Wellness Counseling. If we could bottle this lady and let everybody just sort of sip from her insights and her intelligence, I think we'd be a much more positive and happy place. Amy Deacon, welcome back to uh, Chat That Matters. Thank you for having me, Tony. So Laura Harden, this is a story of, it's almost Hollywood scripted it. I mean, she finds herself getting addicted to drugs Marriage breaks up, meets up with a guy in rehab. They both feed each other's habit. They have another baby. She starts stealing credit cards, robbing her neighbors, doing anything to get the next hit. Drugs get more and more intense. And one day she's arrested and handcuffed in front of her two-year-old son, taken away, spends a year in, in jail. But to fast forward the story, she ends up transforming her life. She ghostwrites Desmond Tutu's book, uh, The Dalai Lama, becomes a literary agent. And she just writes this memoir where she tells the whole world how she went from this sort of life of being a thief and an addict to successful. So that, you know, it's, it's an incredible story. It's a transformative story I love to do. Amy, it's a question I've asked you in the past, and I still, why is it possible that some people can break the cycle and reach for a rung and keep climbing where the others might have all the motivation to reach for that rung, but along the way, they dip back into whatever got him on the street. They get back into their drug addict. They, they, they slip back into a society. Like, why is it that some people can fight that and overcome it and transform and chase their dreams Why others never seem to be able to break it? I wish I could give you a, a cookie cutter answer. It's like, well, these people just do this. And it's, I think every story has its own nuance and, and different things like that. But there's something to be said for being in a position where you have nothing to lose, where we kind of do extreme things on either end, right? When she had nothing to lose, we'll, we'll take that credit card. Thank you very much without, you know, the other person knowing. And, and there was another time where she had, she had nothing to lose, but she had, she needed to gain. And she was able to kind of make a series of good decisions to get herself out of it. But, you know, one other, one other thought, Tony, is I think that people often have this idea that when we're in a really dark place, if we just make the right decisions, there'll be this linear climb up and we're going to be good. And that isn't actually what happens. People trip up along the way. We stay sober for six months. We have that binge and, and, and we feel like we just have to go back into the abyss or we've applied for 10 jobs, a hundred jobs. And so we, we kind of forego the 101 that possibly could have landed us the job. I think that it's becoming increasingly difficult to have this grit and resilience to say, no matter what comes my way, I am going to persevere. I'm going to continue to put one foot in front of the other. And I, I do not think that's that's an easy task, which is why I think her story is so important and that we ought to familiarize ourselves with it, to understand her thoughts, her beliefs, her, her choices that allowed her to go from what was to what is. And how important is it to have the support of your family, even if you've tripped up time and time again? Because I have to believe if they're waiting for that shoe to fall, that has to have an impact on your ability to take those steps forward. I think that family... <laughs> I think that family has a major, major impact, the biggest impact. But what I would also say, because a lot of people don't have the best families and a lot of people, like their families are the ones that are drinking or participating in criminal behavior. And so, but I do think there's something to be said. There's a magic that intersects when, when we as individuals are able to take 
as much responsibility as possible, we're able to quiet the external expectations that things are going to work out and we try to make the best choices that we can. But the magic is when it intersects with people who believe in us and people who are rallying for us, right? We know that that even something, an example for people that struggle with alcoholism, they do a lot better when they're surrounded by people who are sober than when they're surrounded by their friends that are drinking. So being surrounded by people that want to see you healthy and vibrant and doing and successful, that's going to make a huge difference in terms of the trajectory. Amy Deacon, it just you just motivated an idea. I'm going to do the best of Amy Deacon playlist and put it out in my newsletter because people just need to <laughs> listen to you. You should just honestly have a show. You are so... Good, and I want to thank you again for being on Chatter That Matters. You're so welcome, and I, I just like being on your show. I just want to come on to your show. Yeah, you do the hard work, and I'll just say my two cents. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.